We turn in our Bibles now to the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. This is the second of two weeks that we're spending with this chapter. Last time was two weeks ago. And on that Sunday morning, I read the whole chapter for us because I wanted us to hear the whole thing. This week, I'm not going to read quite so much. I'm going to read the beginning of the chapter and then the end of it. As those are the portions of the chapter that we're going to be focusing on this morning. So I think I'll read at the beginning through verse 8. No, verse 11. It's hard to stop when it comes to Isaiah 40. I'll read through verse 11 and then we'll pick up at verse 27 and read that final portion as well. Listen now to the word of God. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. And gently lead those that are with young. So the chapter begins. Glance now to how it ends. Picking up in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. 
Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we worship you, the glorious God revealed here, and we need you. We need the very grace that's described here that we might rise up and run, that we might mount up with wings like eagles. So would you bless your word to our hearing today, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So maybe you remember a couple weeks ago, I said it seemed like a good time to turn to this passage and that for two reasons, the first of them being the Olympics are coming. And whenever the Olympics roll around, it makes me think of that fantastic scene in Chariots of Fire when Eric Little mounts the pulpit in that church in Paris and reads this passage on that Sunday, that Sunday when he will not run. So that was the first reason. The second reason, one that's also related to current events, is that we are more or less exhausted ourselves here at the dawn of 2022. COVID is a wearisome business indeed. And that's why it's such a blessing to turn to this chapter, Isaiah 40, because here we behold our God who is inexhaustible, our God who doesn't wear out, he doesn't run out, doesn't reach the end of his resources, he is inexhaustible, and by his grace, he grants us strength to keep going so that we don't wear out either. We need this. Weary souls in a weary world. So last time, a couple weeks ago, we concentrated on those words at the end, especially verses, verses 27 and 28. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? In other words, why are you cast down, O Israel? Why are you in, in turmoil like this? Why are you afraid that your God has lost sight of you, his people? Well, apparently it's because they had lost sight of him had lost sight of his greatness. Have you not known? Have you not heard? And then we surveyed these four truths about God that Israel needed to be reminded of, and we need it too. The Lord is the everlasting God, creator of the ends of the earth, does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Everlasting creator, Almighty, all-wise. And not only did we see those things at the end of the chapter, but remember, we also glanced back at chapter 40 as it built up to that conclusion to see that those truths about God had been affirmed all along the way. Everlasting, Creator, Almighty, all-wise. Behold your God. So it was quite a vision of God that we got last time. Most humbling, especially when you see yourself in the light of that revelation. And of course we should. We should see ourselves in the light of what the word reveals about God. That's a humbling thing. 
perhaps um, an unsettling thing. Those of you who are uh, fans of science fiction, and even if you're not, I suspect you might be familiar with that rather peculiar work, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. I remember listening to a recording of the BBC radio production of The Hitchhiker's Guide when I was a kid, a comical work of science fiction to be sure, but I I remember this much from the story. Among the various technological marvels that you're introduced to as you read or listen to The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was a dreaded device known as the Total Perspective Vortex. Total Perspective Vortex was a device, it was a chamber of sorts that a person could be put into, and there in the vortex, the person who was put into it would be given in one moment a glimpse of infinity, as well as a glimpse of his own relative significance compared to infinity. And he would see infinity stretching out before his eyes, and then he'd also see this microscopic dot on a microscopic dot, which was labeled, you are here. And as you might imagine, nearly everyone who was put into the total perspective vortex and given that momentary glimpse was utterly undone by the experience. It was not something people survived. It was just that devastating to be given that momentary glimpse of infinity and your own relative significance compared to it, you are here. And we can borrow the words of Isaiah 40. You're not even a drop in the bucket. You're nothing. You're less than nothing. And the vortex was a dreadful thing because it would mean your undoing. So the question is, is that what we're left with here? As Christians, as a church family, after part one on Isaiah 40, a couple weeks back, is that where we find ourselves after what we saw in part one? Last time we knelt down and we looked up and we gazed at the glory of God. (laughs) Everlasting, creator, almighty, all wise. Are we left to be utterly undone by that experience? Just devastated by it, with no prospect of being raised back up. Well, the answer is no. But why is the answer no? What's the explanation for that? Well, the explanation is in this very chapter. We don't have to be flipping to other pages in the Bible to find the answer. The answer is right here. Because the the magnificence, the greatness of God, that we've beheld, everlasting, creator, almighty, all-wise, that is not our total perspective. That's the truth, but that's not the whole truth. There's more to our perspective than that. There is gospel in our perspective. That, That goes into our total perspective, and it's right here in this chapter. So last time, two weeks ago... It was the God of the gospel. Well, this time we flip it. It's the gospel of God. Last time we concentrated on his greatness. This time we concentrate on his grace. 
And there is comfort to be gleaned from that grave. It's certainly on display there at the end of the chapter, and we'll get to it, where it talks about how this almighty, inexhaustible God gives us strength so that we rise up and run, so that we mount up on wings like eagles. So the grace is there at the end of the chapter, that idea of of renewal, that we might be renewed like that, that we might be strengthened like that. So that there's... There's comfort at the end of the chapter, but it doesn't begin there. It begins in the beginning of the chapter. It's the very first word of the chapter repeated. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. So that's why we're casting a glance today, not only at the end of the chapter, to see the grace, the comfort that's there, but also flipping back to the beginning of the chapter because we don't want to overlook What's to be found there? And and if it helps as a guide today, we're going to pick up these three R's as we go. The, the, The gospel of God, the grace of God. First of all, remission. That is the forgiveness of sins. Second of all, revelation. That is to say the prospect of the revelation of the glory of our God. And then third, renewal made strong by the Almighty. So those three, remission, revelation, and renewal. And we'll take them in that order because they're all here. So let's start with this idea of remission, the idea of forgiveness. And this we found at the very beginning of the chapter. Remember I said we're looking at these bookend passages today. Beginning and end of the chapter. Look at the beginning. Verse 1 Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And if, if you're hearing Handel as I read, you're not alone. Every time I read this chapter, I hear the strains of the Messiah. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. That's covenant language. My people, your God. Isn't that beautiful? Even with all of the hard words that Isaiah has to say to them throughout this book, still, God is their God. They are God's people. It's as if God is saying, however much you've given up on me, I will never give up on you. I will never finally disown you, entirely let go of you. As my covenant people. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And then verse 2. Speak tenderly. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. It's not entirely clear who's supposed to be doing all of this comforting and tender speaking. The imperatives here are plural. So it's not just Isaiah. This is some kind of corporate... Testimony. Maybe it's the prophets as a group, Isaiah included. We don't know. But it's okay that we don't know. Because throughout this chapter and elsewhere, the emphasis isn't so much on who's speaking, who the messenger is, as it is on the message itself that's to be delivered. And it's a message of comfort through and through. 
And here, early on in the chapter, what's the message of comfort that's to be delivered to them? Well, it says, cry to her that her warfare is ended. Cry to her that her warfare is ended. Warfare here, meaning hard service. Cry to Jerusalem. Make it plain to my people that the season of their their burden and hardship is over. Maybe what's in view here is the hardship and burden of being taken away into exile in Babylon. Because remember, in Isaiah's day, that hasn't happened yet, but he's pointing them forward to the day when it will. So maybe it's a word that points forward in time to that burden, that hardship, the exile. But even then, the real hardship wasn't being exiled from their land. The real hardship was what the exile meant. The real hardship was the sense of the displeasure of their God, the misery of knowing themselves to be under the anger of God. And so notice he goes on to say that's exactly what's been resolved. Jerusalem's season of hardship and burden is ended for this reason. What does it say? Cry to her that her iniquity is pardoned. There it is. Cry to her that her iniquity is pardoned. And it's been pardoned, we can say, because it's been paid for. This isn't God just winking at sin and looking the other way. This is God justly forgiving because it's been paid for. Now, here in Isaiah 40, Jerusalem is not told, the people of God aren't told how it was paid for. It's not until chapters 52 and 53 that we'll be introduced to the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, where it says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's chapter 53. That's coming. But for now, here in chapter 40, it's enough simply to state the fact of the matter. Cry to Jerusalem, her iniquity has been pardoned. And because God is just... Not the kind of God who's just going to wink at sin and look, at the, look the other way. Well, then it must be that the pardon is granted because the sin has been justly dealt with. And then it keeps going. Cry to her that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Do you see that? Cry to her that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Double, that doesn't mean that the Lord had to pay for their sins Twice over as if the first time wasn't enough. No, it's a way of talking about fullness, completeness, wholeness, sufficiency. Jerusalem's sins have been fully, completely, sufficiently dealt with. It is finished. So that's where the comfort in Isaiah 40 begins at the beginning of the chapter. At the heart of the matter was pardon, forgiveness, remission. It's as if the Lord is saying to his people, your chief problem is not the Assyrians. It's not the Babylonians. It's you. It's the things you've done. It's what you've become. You don't have to flip back there, but at the very beginning of the book, Isaiah's very first word to them in chapter 1 is, 
a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. And with that, we're off and running. 66 chapter. That's chapter 1, his first word. A people laden with iniquity. So the solution to the problem has got to begin with forgiveness. They're laden with iniquity. Well, then solution has got to begin with the lifting of that iniquity in a just remission. So that a people that might have been undone, devastated by the greatness of their God, they live on instead, they rise up instead, ready to serve. And think about it. Isaiah... Isaiah was the perfect man for the job. Here, here the the Lord wants his people to be comforted, to be reassured by a word of forgiveness, a word of remission. Well, who better to deliver that word than a prophet who experienced that firsthand? who experienced personally the fear, the trembling, the feeling of being undone by the holiness of God only to be raised up by a word of forgiveness. Remember chapter 6. Chapter 6, Isaiah says this. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's chapter 6. In that moment, Isaiah is devastated. He's undone because he remembers his own sin and the sin of his people. In that moment, Isaiah, it's as if he thinks, this is my total perspective. I've been brought into the vortex. I've been given a glimpse of the one who is holy, holy, holy. And he's undone and he's devastated Then what happened? Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. And that's when Isaiah, who'd been undone, is, as it were, mended, put back together, made whole, made hopeful, so that he can answer the call of God and say, here am I, send me. Isaiah was the perfect man for this prophetic job. 
To say to the people, yes, your God is everlasting creator, almighty, and all-wise. And just when you might be undone and devastated by that revelation of the glory of God, comfort, comfort my people, for her iniquity is pardoned. That's the first. That's remission. The grace of God, the gospel of God. That's the first. The second, as I said when we got started, is the idea of revelation. Not only the announcement of remission, but also the anticipation, the glad and hopeful anticipation of the revelation, the display of the glory of God. Look at verse 3. Right? We keep going. Verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. In other words, God is coming. The God who's pardoned you, God is riding to the rescue of his people. And because he's coming, get ready for him. Make a way for him. That's the command. And then the command, make a way for him, becomes a promise The way will be made. Look at verse 4. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level. And the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. There it is. Revelation. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God is coming. And the way will be made. And when he comes, it won't just be his people who see his glory. It'll be everybody. All flesh shall see it together. His will not be a covert coming, a secret mission. Israel's taught to look forward to a day when the glory of God will be on display for everyone to see. And think about it. This is a people who've been taunted by their enemies around them. Where is your God? And Israel is taught to look forward to the day when they'll be able to say, where's our God? There he is. Here he comes. Riding to our rescue. He will come, as it says in verses 10 and 11, with might. His arm ruling. He will come with reward and with recompense. He will come tending, gathering, carrying Leading, Israel will be able to say, we will be able to say, where's our God? There he is. Behold the revelation of his glory. And though many on that day will be undone by it, we will rise up and run to it. No wonder this chapter begins. Comfort Comfort my people. That There's the comfort of the announcement of remission. That was first. We've just seen the comfort of the anticipation of revelation. That was second. But then there's one more piece to this picture. There's a third. And it's here that we go to the end of the chapter. We, we, we've looked at the first bookend. Now we go to the other one. The promise of renewal after remission, after revelation. Let's think about renewal. Look at the end of the chapter. Look at verse 29. This God who is so great, this God who is almighty, who doesn't faint, who doesn't grow weary, 
Look at verse 29. He gives power to the faint. He gives it. He doesn't just possess it. He gives it. He shares it. He imparts it. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So yes, it's true. If we're left to ourselves, if we're left as we are, left to rely only upon our own resources, then we don't last. We don't keep going. Even the best among us, Isaiah is saying, those singled out among us for their native strength, they don't last. Finally, they don't keep going. But the comfort of the gospel is precisely this. God does not leave us as we are. Doesn't leave us to ourselves. Doesn't leave us only to our own resources. No, he changes us with his own. He renews us, strengthens us by the strength of his Holy Spirit, working in us a loyal love for him who showed us love first, and then sustaining and nurturing and even increasing that love in our hearts so that we keep going, so that we keep trusting and obeying and in this life repenting. Isaiah 40 is saying, yes, Jerusalem, your God is that kind of God. You can count on him to be that kind of God for you and in you. A God who comes upon the weak and makes them strong so that they rise up and press on and keep running. Running in a way that perhaps even surprises them (laughs) because they'd lost sight of him. That's Isaiah 40. Remission, revelation, renewal. Comfort, comfort my people with this message. In Isaiah's day, still a little shadowy, still a little fuzzy, how all of this is going to come to fruition, how all of this is going to be fulfilled. In our day, as we gaze upon Christ, it is shadowy no more. Because in Christ, it's all come to fruition. It's all been fulfilled. All three of them, all three of our, our, our ours this morning have all been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. So first of all, remission. <clears throat> what do we hear Sunday after Sunday when we come to the Lord's table? Matthew 26, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the remission, for the forgiveness of sins. It's come true in Christ. So, too, revelation, that was our second R, the revelation of the glory of God. The suffering servant was God come to earth, Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And when he did, he came among us in such a way in those days when he walked among us that his glory was veiled. But ever since, the message of the glory of God beheld in the face of Christ has been proclaimed among the nations. And when he comes a second time, and make no mistake, he will come again, 
His glory won't be veiled anymore. The glory of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be revealed on that day and all flesh shall see it together. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. So remission has come true in him. Revelation has come true in him. And so too, renewal. God hasn't left us to ourselves. He hasn't left us as we are. No, in Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit of Christ, we have been made new. We've been made strong. By the power of the Spirit of Christ, we've risen up believing, obeying, repenting, persevering. It takes strength to live like that. A strength that we don't have of ourselves, but Christ does, and he imparts it. He not only possesses it, but he grants it, he imparts it, so that we are not left as we were. That's why I wanted to read for us earlier in our service, 2 Corinthians 10. Yes, Paul is describing there something unique in his own experience, but by the time he's done, he's describing something that touches a nerve with us. Paul afflicted, and, and, and he prayed that he should be relieved of that affliction. But what did we hear in 2 Corinthians 12? Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Finally, he says, when I am weak, then I am strong. 2 Corinthians 12. Notice, he doesn't say... When I am weak, then Christ is strong, though that's true. But that's not our total perspective. It's not just when I'm weak, then Christ is strong. No, it's when I'm weak, then I am strong. Even in in weakness, in moments of it, I'm mindful of the fact that weakness isn't all I've got. Weak in the way that I'm feeling it, in the way that I'm experiencing that. That's not all that's true of me. There's something different about Paul. There's some real change that's taken place in him. He has been renewed. And every Christian believer can say, Amen. I've been renewed like that myself. That's not to say we don't have our moments, our days, perhaps longer When it seems like all we feel is weak, we do. But it is to say that even then, in those moments, there's more to us than that. Even then, by the grace of Christ who is almighty, there's an underlying strength in us, and it could be a strength that we've lost sight of. And what we need to do is take a second look to know ourselves Better. We have been made new. We have been made strong. As I said when we got started with this chapter a couple weeks back, this is one of the reasons why I wanted us to turn to Isaiah 40. This is a moment here, January of 2022. This is a moment of more than average weariness for a lot of people.
In part because it feels like we're running a race. We're running this COVID race. And we don't know how long the race is. We don't know where the finish line is. Imagine running a race like that. These days we're even revisiting the very idea of a finish line. So that we can find ourselves thinking, I didn't train for this. For that matter, I'm not even sure anymore what this is this race that I'm running. This is a moment of more than average weariness for a lot of people, which makes this a very good moment, perfect moment for us as Christians to be reminded of what's true of us thanks to God's grace. It's perfectly natural that we find ourselves weary in a season of more than average stress. Of course we do. That's natural. But friends, ours is the supernatural. The natural. Natural ideas and principles and resources. That's not all we've got. Ours is the grace of an almighty, all-wise, everlasting creator. And we know that grace as we commune with God. Throughout the day. And day after day, including the Lord's Day, including this one, when we gather like this, we know that grace when we refresh our souls at the brook that is the Bible and bear our souls to God in honest prayer and lean on one another. And how we need to lean on one another in the fellowship that is the church. That's why I say we need to take a second look at ourselves. What's true of us. We have been made new. We have been made strong. So remission. Revelation. Renewal. We've noticed each of those three in our chapter. We've seen each of those three in Christ. And each of them is true of us now. And then I, I want to wrap up with this. And this is what's especially encouraging to me as I think about our three R's. We've taken them one by one. We've noticed them separately in the chapter, in Christ, and our experience. But they're not really separate in our experience. This is all one beautiful package, these three I mean, think about it. The idea of renewal. They shall renew their strength. They shall rise up and run. Well, you can't rise up and run like that if there's a burden on your back that's weighing you down. The burden of guilt. So there's that need for remission if you're going to rise up in renewal so as to run. And not only that, but there's also the need for that revelation, the prospect of what you're running to, which is the thought that one day we will see Christ and we will behold the glory of our God in Christ who has come. It all ties together. It's got to be all three of them. Remission, the burden removed from our backs, Revelation, the anticipation that all of this running will end in rejoicing and renewal. The weak made strong, the weak rising up and running. 
And what, what so beautifully captures all of this in my own mind is that moment in Pilgrim's Progress. Early on, part one, when our protagonist, Christian, who's been weighed down, reaches the cross. Bunyan, John Bunyan writes, Now I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall. And that wall was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below, in the bottom, a sepulcher. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble, and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in, and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome. Then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on singing. So here's a man who's been renewed, rising up to run like he's never run before. And he can run like that because he has finally tasted of the remission that's to be found in Christ. The burden of his own sin, the guilt of his sin, which has been weighing him down and hindering him, is removed from him so that he can run now. And running not just in that moment, but he's been given a seal that testifies that he'll be given a warm welcome above when that day comes. When he will see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ like never before. That's Pilgrim's Progress. And friends, we are, we are pilgrims now, aren't we? So yes, let this, let all of this be our total perspective. Behold your God, everlasting creator, almighty, all-wise, and behold his grace. By that grace in Christ, there is the remission of sins. There is the prospect of the revelation of his glory. And there is renewal now so that we can rise up and run. So may we run. And amen. Let's pray together. Our great God, and you are that. Our God, we are your people, and you are great. Everlasting creator, unsearchable in wisdom, almighty in power, we tremble, and yet we are not undone. For we hear these sweet words of comfort 
comfort. And we have been comforted today by the thought that our sins are forgiven, by the anticipation of the revelation of your glory, and by your grace at work in us, renewing us, so that we might press on. May we know that grace again this very day, this day of grace, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.